All right, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and uh, hold a finger there, flip over to Matthew 19, one page. We're going to stand in honor of reading God's Word this morning. As we continue our look at Matthew's Gospel, noble living in a needy world. Noble living in a needy world, when it comes to modeling what this noble living in a needy world is all about, I want to title this particular message this morning, Thank God for Kids. Thank God for Kids. That's more than just the title of a country song by the Oak Ridge Boys. It's the title of this message this morning. We're skipping to chapter 18. By the way, we'll come back and look at some parables of the kingdom that precede this in the month of March. Toward the end of the month of March, we'll move toward the death and resurrection of Christ through the Easter season. Then we will flip back. So we're kind of uh, taking a a shotgun approach to Matthew's Gospel. We'll come back and look at his prophetic literature concerning the second coming of Christ. Matthew gives us more details concerning the apocalyptic uh, vision of the coming of Christ. So we'll look at that after we get through the Easter season. So we're going to get there. We'll cover Matthew's Gospel, but but I felt for the month of... that we're in, month of February, (laughs) we would look at this passage, these two chapters here surrounding the family. All right, you found your place, Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then he called a child to him and had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believes in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. I want to keep that in context. These warnings against offenses is in the context of causing children to stumble. If your hand or your foot causes your downfall, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye rather than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell fire. And then in chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, the children were brought to him so he might put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. Then Jesus said, Leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven is made up of people like this. After putting his hands on them, and Mark's gospel says, he blessed them at that moment. He went on from there. Father, we thank you for kids. We thank you for the life of Christ who modeled the priority of children and what they can teach us and what we must teach them. We pray that your Spirit would guide us As we study this truth together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Three expectant fathers were in a waiting room years before. You had to learn Lamaze and kind of go in there and be the birthing coach with your wife. Three fathers were waiting in a waiting room while the expectant mothers were giving birth. When a nurse comes into the waiting room and says to the first father sitting there, congratulations, your wife just gave birth 
to twins. You'll be able to see them in just a moment. That man began to high-five the other men and said, I can't believe that. We gave birth to twins. It's going to be a great story because I actually work for the Minnesota Twins baseball franchise, and so this is kind of cool that I gave birth to twins. About the time he finished explaining that, uh, the nurse walked back out and looked at the second fellow and said, congratulations, your wife just gave birth to triplets. And he was like, I can't believe this. You work for the Minnesota Twins. You gave, your wife gave birth to twins. I work for the 3M company. And my wife just gave birth to triplets. That's amazing. And the third man in the weight room began to run out the door. And they said, wait a minute, where are you going? He said, I'm out of here, man. I work for 7-Up and I'm not hanging around. Well, sometimes children can be a frightening experience. And like I said, we're going to come back and look at some of the parables. But as I flipped ahead and I thought about tying in Matthew chapter 19 and all that it teaches about marriage and, and divorce and is there life after divorce and, and forgiveness and, and restoration, I thought it was interesting that the subject of marriage was sandwiched in between passages that deal with children. We will see the importance of the home and the family in this text. But I want us to leave here today thanking God for kids. Maybe our own kids, our grandkids, kids in our church and in our community. While there's a corporate responsibility for the body of Christ, the church, to advance the kingdom of God and, and to prioritize children, it's the daily responsibility of the home that most consistently reveals noble living in a needy world. The daily consistency, the daily responsibility in the home. So chapter 9 begins with these conversations on, I'm sorry, chapter 19 deals with the conversations on the permanence of marriage and, and all of that. And again, it's sandwiched in between these lessons on children and, and, and specifically some parables and teachings on forgiveness. So what does Christ's interaction here with the kids what does his interaction with these children teach us about noble living in a needy world? What does it teach us about nobility as Christians? And I'm going to just make two broad points and give a little explanation for each point. We're going to see the example that kids set for us. And then we're going to see the example we must set for kids. So let's start where, where the Scripture starts here with the example the kids set for us. I want us to see the humble example children set for adults first this morning. The humble example children set for adults. Isn't it cool that children set an example for us? So, so the disciples are being themselves, when we get to verse 1, they're aspiring to greatness, and perhaps their greatness is a desire to have great influence. It might have been that they were jockeying for some kind of political position in the kingdom, but they wanted to be great in the kingdom. They wanted to have influence and impact. So Jesus calls over in verse 2, a child. Now, I find it interesting that children were there. That these adults that had surrounded Christ and, and were hearing all of His teaching didn't just leave the kids at home. They had their kids close to Jesus. And something that we need to always seek to do 
as parents, as grandparents, is get our kids as close to Jesus as we possibly can. So the kids are there, they're with their family, and, and they're surrounding Jesus, and it didn't bother Jesus to have kids around. And so we see in that context, the first thing that I want us to learn from the example of these children, and that is that children respond to Christ. Children are responsive. As we get older, sometimes it's hard to let our hearts be responsive to the things of God. But not for children, they are so responsive. If you want to ever see how responsive kids are, come and sign up and go with us as a counselor to kids camp this summer. And you will experience some of the most powerful moments of worship that you've ever experienced because kids are responsive to the things of God. These these kids are are responding. Jesus calls one over. What does He do? He comes. And in verse 3, we're told that we're to be like this child. We're to be like children. He says, unless you are converted. The word to be converted meant to to be repentant or more specifically, more more literally, we might say to, to change our mind or change our way of thinking. So as we look at children, we need to say, you know what, I don't need to, when it comes to the things of faith, make them more like me. There's so many times as parents, you know, as we're walking through our kids through a spiritual journey, we want to wait till they grasp certain theological truths before we celebrate what God's doing in their life. And God is telling us, look, they don't need to get to the place where they're more like you. You need to be more like them. And just by faith, respond to what God is doing in your presence. And so we're to convert, we're to change our way of thinking. When we become adults, we lose a certain sensitivity. But think about it, the most important things that you've ever learned in your life, you probably learned as a child. Robert Fulgham, who wrote for the Kansas City Times, shared this article. He said, most of what I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sandbox at nursery school. They were allowed to have sandboxes. Anybody else attend Isla kindergarten like me? The sandbox became a litter box. Um, Fulgham goes on to say, These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. And when you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands and stick together. Devotional called Bits and Pieces says, This writer has captured part of what Jesus meant when he said, Unless you become like little children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to learn to respond like children respond. Another area where children set the example is children recognize their dependence upon God. Children are quick to recognize their dependence on God. It's a place of humility. And so in verse 4, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child... This one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, quit trying to be so high and mighty disciples. You want to be great in the kingdom? Humble yourself. Recognize your dependence on God and you will begin to set the right kind of example. The example that these children are sitting. Humility is the key. Some of you have learned the acrostic frog. F-R-O-G. There are even some people that have a bracelet that have F-R-O-G written on it. Those of you that have memorized that acrostic F-R-O-G knows that it stands for fully rely on God. Fully rely 
on God. Children have come to a place where they fully, as a matter of fact, they arrive there early in life, they fully rely on God. They don't have it all together. They don't have to hold it all together. Children can quickly embrace Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And they really believe that nothing is impossible with God because they are fully dependent upon somebody else for everything in their lives. As adults, somewhere we take responsibility, and that's good. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we also try to take control and we cease to rely on God. Well, I've got to manage my finances. I've got to set goals. I've got to balance commitments. And we leave God's standards and God's priorities out of it. I've got to face these crises alone. I've got to overcome temptations in my own strength. I've got to solve the conflict in my home. And with pride, we say, I, 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 I've got to control all of this. I've got to get my arms around it. I've got to get a handle on it. And God is saying, nope, fully rely on me. Just give it to me. Like a child, fully rely on God. That's a place of humility. Celeste Sibley, who was a writer for many, many years with the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, went into a diner in Atlanta with her kids which would have been probably in the first half of the previous century, but went into this diner, and, and, and all the tables were taken. And when she went into the diner and all the tables were taken, the kids just kind of went up to the counter, and they were spread across the counter. There a big crowd in the diner that particular morning. And one of her daughters, trying to lean over the counter and look down and see her mom, and, and Celeste had not had a prayer for the meal because it was... You know, kind of crowded and kind of hard to speak to all the kids. And, and, and her daughter, whose name was Mary, leaned over and said, Mom, don't people pray before they eat when they go out? The mom, her face was about to turn red when the manager there of the diner said, Yes, young lady, people here pray. Would you pray for us? And she was amazed. The mom was amazed at how the whole place became silent and this little girl began to say, God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. So it took a child to get everybody's attention to say, you know what, we just need to rely on God for the daily provisions of life. Children can teach us a lot. How to recognize, uh, children recognize their dependence on God. We can recognize that we're dependent on God. And, and finally, children receive the blessings of Christ. Children very readily receive the blessings of Christ. You know, notice you never have to beg kids to receive gifts. You don't have to beg them to receive gifts. They are wide-eyed, whether it's a birthday, Christmas morning, or any other time that some grandparent just wants to spoil them. Kids readily receive gifts unless their parents have warned them again and again and again, don't you let them buy you anything. <laughs> And then they can still be talked into it. Kids readily receive gifts, but not, not adults. Jesus wants to bless these kids. So in chapter 19, He's called children around Him again. The disciples want to pull Him away. He says, leave them alone. Don't try to keep them from coming to Me. Don't be an obstacle for your children being blessed by God. 
It's amazing how many times kids will say, but I'm ready to go on a mission trip, and the parents say, I don't really think you're ready. I think it's going to cost way too much for you to go on a mission trip. Now, we can get the money together for all the sports camps you're going to go to, but the mission trip, that's way too much. So as parents, we become stumbling blocks. Try to keep the kids from getting in on what God has for them. It says He put His hands on them and He blessed them. They received, because they were coming to Jesus, received a blessing. Somewhere in adolescence, though, when, when these children start becoming young men and young ladies, they can lose their desire for the blessings of God. And if we haven't taught them as children to celebrate what God is doing, if we haven't learned from their example, hey, it's okay to get in on God's best for your life, then when they become teenagers, they will decide, you know what, I really don't know if God knows what's best. And as parents, we'll be begging them to do things God's way rather than the world's way. So let's celebrate when they're children. They're setting an example for us when it comes to receiving the blessings of Christ. Celebrate that with them so they don't settle for the counterfeit pleasures of this world and forfeit the blessings of God on their life. Children set such a wonderful example. But what about adults? What kind of example do we set? So so I want us to transition our thinking for a moment now. Let's thank God for kids, and let's thank God for the example that they set for us. But let's also thank God for kids and be reminded of a healthy example adults must set for children. Jesus transitions the conversation here, and He reminds us of the healthy example that adults must set for children. And I believe that three Beatitudes come out of these principles here in the next few verses. The first one is, be relational. Be relational. Look at verse 5. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. Jesus was very approachable. He was relational. Kids wanted to know and love Jesus. And we're told here, we're to receive these children like we're receiving Christ Himself. Jesus welcomed kids very approachable. He could relate. He was not some stoic religious figure like most of the paintings portray him as. He was a a man who could relate. I remember buying a particular picture for Tina back, I think before we even got married, a a picture of uh, Jesus with children. And, And it was an unusual picture. It was the first picture that I had seen with children gathered around Christ, and Jesus was laughing. His mouth was wide open, and he was breaking forth in laughter. And I think that's a better picture than all of these pictures where he's so stern and stoic, because I think when it came to kids, Jesus was fun to be around. He could relate. He was relational. I believe if Jesus were here on a Sunday morning, yes, he would enjoy our worship, and he would say, yes, preach the word, but he would also get in the floor in the nursery and play with the kids, because he could relate. He would go up to the kids and say, we're going to have a blast today. He was relational. He could connect with the children. So we need to learn to be relational. It's Obviously, it's important for our church, but it's more important for the home. It's important for every family represented here. As parents, we've got to be careful not to be caught up in in talking down to our kids all the time, but learning to relate to them. Think about all the examples that God sets for us. I think of James chapter 1 and verse 5 where we're told, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask for God who gives to all men liberally and without finding fault, or 
King James says, without reproach. In other words, when, when we go to our Heavenly Father for advice, God doesn't say, you got yourself into this mess, you get yourself out. No, God relates to us as children. He says, I love you, I want what's best for you, I'm so glad you came to me. And as parents, we need to say, I love you, I want what's best for you, I'm so glad you came to me. We need to be approachable and be relational. It means knowing where they are in life and being able to connect. Know what's going on in their world. Robert Lewis says we need to learn to transition through the stages of life because we need to move from coach to cheerleader, especially when they, when they enter into those adolescent years. We need to move from being that coach who just kind of lays everything out for them to being a cheerleader who says, you know what to do, now get after it. We're going to cheer you on. We're behind you 110%. And he says, eventually you need to move from cheerleader to counselor where you're available and you say, look, you come to me. I am here anytime you need me. So we need to learn to walk with them through those transitions of life. We need to learn to balance love with discipline and instruction. And both are necessary, and kids need that balance. They need a lot of love, and they need a lot of discipline and instruction. But if you try to give discipline and instruction without an environment of love, you will get rebellion. Every time, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. As a matter of fact, surveys have been done, and kids are more likely to get in bigger trouble in life when they receive discipline and instruction without love than they are when they receive neither love nor discipline and instruction. The best environment is a loving environment, unconditional love and acceptance that also brings in discipline and instruction, guidance and direction. So we've got to be able to relate. We've got to be relational. Then we've got to be responsible. You've got to understand, as adults, there are certain things that we realize that we're to be responsible for, providing for their best interests. So in verse 6, whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believes in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now that sounds like offending kids is a big deal to Jesus. We're not only our brother's keeper, but we are responsible to influence and impact the next generation, and we need to accept that responsibility. Some of you are familiar with Ephesians chapter 6, the first four verses there, where we're told as children we're to honor our father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that your days may be long upon the earth, may be, may be fruitful upon the earth. I believe there's so much in that passage there about, about the life of impact we can grow to live. But not only that, he comes back and he says, Fathers, don't provoke your children unto wrath. Don't put such impossible demands on them. Don't fill them with the wrong priorities. Which means sometimes, and listen, I'm one of those dads that, that emphasizes the importance of academics. And, and I want my kids to make straight A pluses on every report card all the time. And sometimes if you're not careful, you can put unreasonable demands. Now, I don't expect to hear an amen from my kids this morning. But sometimes you can hear uh, parents that just make it sound as if they're not making straight A pluses. They're going to be written off. And so I've got to avoid that. That's not the biggest priority. See, the, the biggest priority I have is what 
John the Apostle had when he says, I have no greater joy than to know my children are walking in the truth. And I'd much rather my kids not make straight A's, but love and walk with Jesus than to have straight A pluses and not walk with Jesus. Some of you aren't tempted so much like me in the area of academics. It's for, for you, it's athletics, and we want our, our kids to sell and, uh, succeed, excel in athletics. And so, so we see men all the time, sometimes ladies, but you can walk over to the ball fields during baseball season, during the, the peak of Little League season, and you see dads wearing their egos on their sleeves, making unreasonable demands out of their kids because they've made, made such a big deal out of athletics. The only thing I was really good at when I was a kid was roller skating. <laughs> you know, my, my parents got behind me in baseball and football when I played a sport, but the only thing that I just kind of beat everybody else at was roller skating. So Toby, he gave me some challenges out there, but I believed in roller derby, and I was bigger than him back then. I still am. We'd just knock him off the rink, you know. And a guy comes up to me, and he says, you know what you need to do? You need to join. You've got to understand, young people, roller skating used to be cool. I know it's kind of geeky now. But, but in the late 70s and early, early 80s, roller skating was cool. And guys could get away with wearing you know, flashy T-shirts they can't wear it and all kinds of stuff. Roller skating was, was cool back then, and so a guy comes up and he, he asked me one of the coolest things. He says, don't you want to join the Athens speed team? Whoa. The Athens speed team. I've got my own skates. I'm about to buy some of those Red Devil wheels. Some, some of you adults know what I'm talking about. And, and I, going to Athens, then he started talking about how much money it was going to be. You're going to travel. All, well, I just... I just want to come here and skate with my friends. <laughs> I don't want to go to Chattanooga and Macon and all over the place with some speed team with the, these other geeks I don't know. I, I just, man, it, my mom loads, loads about eight or nine of my closest friends and her Nova to come to skate around USA. And I, I just want to hang out with them. And I can beat all them and we have a lot of fun. I'm, I don't I want to join. No, nah, Athens speed team's not for me. Today, it's amazing. A kid wants to play baseball and have fun with his friends. A kid wants to play football, basketball, have fun with his friends. No, no, no. You can excel. We've got to make it a priority. And we, we try to put demands sometimes. Maybe the kid's over there going, I don't want to spend 42 hours a week practicing. I want to hang out with my friends. I want to have fun. So, so whether it's academics or athletics, don't drive them nuts pushing something that's not the main thing, the most important thing in their life. Be responsible to lead them to faith in Christ. It's up to us to provide a blessing in their life. Yes, Jesus in chapter 19, verse 15, laid His hands on them and He blessed them. It's up for us to provide that blessing now. What is the blessing? The, the blessing in the Old Testament was something that became an official moment when a father would lay his hands on his children. It was appropriate, meaningful touch, and it was a verbal affirmation. And there's a certain security that children have when they're receiving the blessing throughout the course of their life. There are certain fears that they overcome when they're receiving the blessing. The security that comes as a blessing. Researchers at John Hopkins University reported that in 1960, the greatest fears of grade school children this is in 1960. 
the greatest fears. Number one, animals. Certain animals. Number two, being in a dark room. Number three, high. Pastor Ben said amen on that one. High places. Number four, strangers. Strangers. Number five, loud noises. Those were the five biggest fears of kids. 30 years later, 1990, they did the same study using the same research messages, and they found out the number one fear that kids have was that their parents might get a divorce. Number two, nuclear war. Number three, cancer. Number four, pollution. (laughs) And number five, and by the way, that was before Al Gore was vice president. Number four was pollution. Number five, being mugged. Being mugged. Kids need to know that they're secure. They need to receive the blessing of their parents' hands of protection and provision in their life. Kids need to hear certain things constantly. They need to hear, I love you. Again and again and again. Kids need to hear, I'm proud of you. Careful dads when we feel like our kids have to make us look good with their grades or their athletic ability. I love you. I'm proud of you. Kids need to hear, you're good at. They need for us to know what they're good at. They need to hear, you know, this word is true. Kids need to hear, you know what, the most important thing in your life is to know that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross, rose again, wants to come live inside of you, and wants you to live for Him day in and day out. That's what kids need to hear constantly. Kids need to hear the Gospel. We need to be responsible to make sure they hear it. And finally, we need to be righteous. We need to be righteous because it doesn't work when we say, do as I say, not as I do. I heard even a message this morning as I was preparing my heart for worship, watching Jack Graham preach on television on the subject of alcohol. And he said 80% of kids that grow up in a home where alcohol is acceptable will end up becoming active drinkers of alcohol. But we need to realize our example means everything. Do as I do, not just as I say. Usually, do as I say, not as I do is a recipe for failure. Kids pick up our actions. It's been said that kids are like wet cement. Whatever falls leaves an impression. Good, bad, intended, or not. I'll never forget when Kent was just learning how to talk and, and say certain words, dad, dad, mama, and whatever you could say, he was going to repeat it. One day, you know how it is when, you, when, you, when you've got the car seat in one hand, and you're, for me, it was a day timer. We didn't have our calendar on our phones back then. And if you were someone who was trying to organize your life, like I was somewhat, I had a big, thick day timer. If you ever want to know what a big, thick day timer is, there's some in my office. I have records going all the way back to uh, before when I got married. But I've got my day timer, my schedule, everything that was important to me that you have on your phone, all of your out, everything was in my day timer. So, so I laid my day timer on top of the van. All my notes, everything I got going on in, in, in student ministry, you name it, so that I can do what every good dad will do, right? Put the car seat in and get the seat belt and fight with the seat belt. And by the time I finished fighting with the seat belt, got Kit in the back seat of our minivan there. I 
get back in the driver's seat and forgot that my daytimer was on top of the van. I pull out onto Business 17 there in Leland, North Carolina, look in the mirror, and there goes my daytimer. And it didn't, it didn't just blow off. It opened up. And papers and notes and calendar and probably sign-up sheets for youth going on the next big thing that we were doing. Everything is blowing all over the highway. And I messed up. I said, oh, crap. And before I could say anything, Kent had repeated that phrase a dozen times. So I've got a two-year-old in the back seat of the van going, oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap. I'm like, Kent, you can't say that. But throughout his life, he's picked up things from his dad because he's been watching me. He's been listening listening to me. And there will come a day where I may not have the kind of influence that I've had up until now. And so he wants to know if I live what I preach because he's going to repeat it again and again and again. So in verses 7 through 9, we see these strong warnings. And we forget that these warnings came in the context of our influence on children. Woe to the world because of offenses. Offenses must come, but the woe to that man by whom the offenses come. So he talks about cutting off the foot or, or cutting off the hand or, or plucking out the eye, and we say, man, that is radical. Now, by the way, there scriptures and even Jesus himself used devices that we use today in our conversation called hyperbole. So I don't, I don't think you should leave the building today and, and cut your hand off or cut your foot off. But for some of you, that means you're going to have to get the internet out of your house or get that filter on it and only allow it in a room where everybody can see that there's accountability so that it's not an offense. For some of you, you need to go in and cancel some of the television stations that you get that are coming into your house. See, it's, it's dealing ruthlessly with sin. And you have to discover where that offense is going to be. Some of you, it's, it's cleaning up your language because your language is going to be an offense, not only because it offends them to hear it, but because they're going to pick up on it. We've got to live righteously. Thank God for kids. We need to show them character. They need to see parents loving God and loving each other. They need to see your heart. That you're the real deal. Thank God for kids because of the example they set. Thank God for kids because of the example that they demand of us. That's the context where Jesus is going to talk about forgiveness and restoration and marriage. Maybe it will help us see the significance of all of these things before we get to it. Thank God for kids. Will you bow your heads with me?